0: One of the rather melancholy aspects of aeronautical history is that the two world wars have acted as major stimulators of aircraft design and development, and of all the complicated equipment that inevitably goes with flying. The effect of the last world war was prodigious, and one of its major contributions was the bringing to fruition of Frank Whittle's work on jet propulsion, a contribution, by the way, exactly paralleled in Germany. Also arising out of the last war, was the almost magical invention of radar by Watson Watt. But you will hear first from an outstanding figure in military aviation, Sir Alec Carleton, who is going to tell you about the development in aviation during the wartime years. Next comes Mr Hayne Constant, Director of the National Gas Turbine Establishment, who in turn introduces Sir Robert Watson Watt, the creator of radar. So here is Air Chief Marshal Sir Alec Carleton to start this
1: story. Sir Alec Corrigan, During the war years 1939 to 1945 the development of aircraft was carried on at the highest possible rate. History was repeating itself as the same intensive development took place during World War I. If one takes the Spitfire, which was perhaps the most famous of all our wartime aircraft as an example, we find that the speed had gone up from 367 miles an hour at the beginning of the war to 455 miles an hour at the end, an increase of almost 100 miles an hour. At the same time, its rate of climb was almost doubled. How were all these improvements achieved? They were not by one single development, but by concentrated efforts on a mass of detailed points. Firstly, the drag of the aeroplane was improved. The engine power, the power of any given engine, was almost doubled. If we look into that further, we find that there was no single reason for doubling the power, but again it was achieved by improvements in superchargers for high altitudes, improvements in fuel, ignition systems, and in materials. Development of bombers has, of course, run along rather different lines than that of fighters. In the case of the bomber, developments were chiefly in increased bomb load and increased range. The average weight of bomb load at the beginning of the war was about five thousand pounds, and the Lancaster ended up at eighteen thousand pounds. In fact, the Lancaster, with modifications to the bomb bay, carried the twenty-two thousand pound bomb in 1945. The Mosquito was a development which must be mentioned. It had many functions and a very good performance by virtue of its wood and metal construction. It enabled the woodworking trades of this country, and also in Canada and Australia, to join in the manufacture of aircraft which were needed in such large numbers. The Mosquito bomber was unarmed, and as such started a line of development which is still current today, namely the high-speed unarmed bomber. There is certainly one special development which appears to have had its origin during the war. that is cabin pressurisation. This development took place in the Spitfire and the Wellington, chiefly for high-altitude photographic purposes. Today, cabin pressurisation has become universal in all civil aircraft. This is a rough outline of the aircraft side. I haven't mentioned the really outstanding aviation achievement, the gas turbine engine. This engine enabled aviation to forge ahead along new lines as the war came to an end and made the aircraft of the previous era look almost old-fashioned the next speaker hayne constant who is now the director of the national gas turbine establishment is one of the pioneers who has been working on the development of the gas turbine since its inception in 1937 hayne
2: constant sir alec has been speaking about aeroplanes during the war years. I want to go back to a few years before the war and tell you what had been happening to aeroplane engines. In those days, all our aircraft were powered by piston engines driving propellers. These engines had for some years been getting steadily more and more complex as aeronautical engineers strove to improve their performance. This increasing complexity had been filling some of us with alarm and we began to look around for some alternative and simpler means of propulsion. The possibility of using a steam turbine driving a propeller was considered and rejected owing to the excessive weight and drag of the condenser. A much more attractive proposition was the gas turbine, a power plant consisting only of a compressor, a combustion chamber, and a turbine which drove both the compressor and the propeller. The idea of such an engine had been known for many years, but practical difficulties had prevented an effective machine from being constructed. There were two difficulties which had to be overcome. One was the design of a compressor of high aerodynamic efficiency, and the other, the development of a material which could be used for the turbine blades, and would have sufficient strength at the high temperature at which they would have to operate. It so happened that both these problems were ones which the aeronautical world was well-fitted to solve, since their engineers were skilled in aerodynamics and had already encountered the, the behaviour of high temperature materials in piston engine exhaust valves. At first, there were only two teams working on the gas turbine in England. One was at the Royal Aircraft Establishment where I was working under Dr. A. A. Griffith, and the other under Flight Lieutenant, now Sir Frank Whittle, at a private company called Power Jets Limited. There were two important differences between the ideas of these two groups, one affecting the method of propulsion to be used, and the other relating to the detailed design of the compressor. At the Royal Aircraft Establishment, it was proposed that propulsion should be obtained by means of the conventional propeller, while Whittle suggested that the aircraft should be driven by a high-speed jet of hot gas from the engine exhaust. The idea of using a jet for propulsion had been known about some time, but no one thought of a suitable engine to provide the jet. It was Whittle who pointed out that the gas turbine was just the right kind of power plant for this purpose, because. It was capable of taking in and ejecting air in very large quantities. So far as the difference in compressor designs concerned, Whittle used the conventional form of centrifugal compressor similar to that used for supercharging piston engines, while the Royal Aircraft Establishment concentrated on a novel arrangement known as the axial compressor, a device rather like a steam turbine in reverse. As it turned out, The Royal Aircraft Establishment Team soon accepted the advantages of jet propulsion over the propeller and, on the other hand, the axial compressor quickly demonstrated its superiority over the centrifugal. And so, the British Axial Jet Propulsion Gas Turbine Engine was born. While all this work to perfect the aeroplane and its power plant had been going on, a parallel effort had been directed to a rather different objective, that of detecting aircraft in flight. Sir Robert Watson Watt, one of the pioneers of radar, will now tell you this story. This thing called radar
3: has been carefully defined as the art of detecting by means of radio echoes the presence of objects, determining their direction and ranges, recognizing their character, and implying the data thus obtained in the performance of military, naval, or other operations. In most radar equipment, we do this by sending out very brief but very powerful pulses or bangs of radio energy with relatively long intervals between them. For a millionth or so of a second, the radar transmitter will be sending out radio energy at a 1,500 horsepower rate. For a fiftieth of a second, It will be completely quiet, then will come another 1,500 horsepower radio bang, and so on. And in all, save the earliest radar chains, this outgoing energy will be concentrated in a narrow radio beam searching the sky as an invisible searchlight. When this probing radio finger meets an aircraft, or a wild duck, or a rain cloud, a radio echo will return to the radar station. The echo may contain only some millions of a millionth of a millionth of the energy which was in the outgoing bang. It may have traveled 200 miles in the outgoing bang and 200 miles is the returning whisper, in which case it will come home about two thousandths of a second after leaving home. Now, the exact time of travel will tell us very exactly how far away is the radar target, off which it has bounced back to us. And the two directions, one from true north and one above the horizontal, in which the radio finger was pointing as the echo came back, will complete the story of where exactly the target is. The fashionable radar screen nowadays is the plan position indicator, PPI for short. On it, each returning radar echo produces a bright spot of light at a distance from the center which is proportional to the distance of the target and at an angle from the north mark equal to the target's angle from north. So you see why it's called plan position indicator. In fact, it draws and constantly redraws a luminous map of all the points from which radar echoes are coming back to the radar station. The shading and contrast of the map features depends on the relative strength of the radar echoes from each reflecting object. Well, how, when, and where did we get all these box uh, boxes of tricks from? Early in 1935, a friend in government service asked me if I thought a death ray could be devised for air defense. I said no. But I did add that I could tell him how to locate hostile aircraft. I said I was quite sure I could do it at 60 miles, and pretty sure I could do it at 200 or even 300 miles. The British government said I could pick a small team of researchers and go ahead. We moved into our new little coastal laboratory on the thirteenth day of May, 1935. The government then expected that we might be able after we'd worked for another five years or so, to locate and track unknown aircraft from 50 miles away. This we were in fact doing within five months. And before these five months were out, we had decided that we should be able to squeeze a whole radar station into a two-seater aircraft, and we had also written the recipe for making the planned position indicator. From all this wartime stuff, we learned how we could give to civil aviation airborne radar means towards the avoidance of thunderstorms and high mountains and other aircraft. To their ground servants, we could give means for watching the movements of every aircraft within a hundred-mile radius from one ground station. To their safe landing in very bad visibility, we contributed ground-controlled approach equipment. This allows a calm and sheltered radar man or woman to talk down an incoming aircraft through quite dense fog, and so on. And of course, out of all this we got, among other things, police radar, which cost a man called Robert Watson Watt the modest sum of 12 dollars 5 in respect of at 42-mile speed in a 30-mile-per-hour restricted area.